0: Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Award-winning investigative journalist Bob Henley has been reporting for over 30 years on federal, state, and local politics, international affairs, public policy, labor, media, the environment, public utilities, land use, land enforcement, and national security for Salon, the chief leader, and other news organizations, and on public radio, including this show. And I'm very pleased that Bob Henley is joining us once again today. Welcome back. Is it a month already?
1: After a while,
0: <laughs> you, you just get oh. Oops. Somebody just joined us <laughs> uninvited. Uh, I'm sure that uh, most of our listeners are kind of tired of COVID-19 stories, but a major news story has been the new CDC mask guidelines. Uh, and, uh, the CDC is rolling it out on the honor system. What is your take on that? I think we should
1: preface it with uh, a little background, which is that we're now at, uh, closing in at 600,000 deaths, at least, uh, 33 million infections. And globally, the world is on fire in places like Brazil and India. Other than that, uh, it's a fine day in America. Um, the CDC uh, kind of surprised everybody, as the Times reported, and rolled back guidance for uh, indoor uh, masking for individuals who are vaccinated and pretty much decided that with the exception of some settings, uh, mass transit, and you know, closed in areas like uh, airplane cabins, uh, those that are vaccinated did not have to have a mask. Now, the problem with this, and it's now percolating, is that it makes a mistake. That the power structure has said they would never do again, as we think and pause a moment of silence for our essential workers, people of color who suffer with communities that have such disparity in health care that will make sure to never, ever make them invisible again. And yet, Leonard, that's just what this advisory does, because smarter people than me have pointed out that they didn't coordinate it with the states first, nor with a little organization called OSHA. Hence, we have a situation where you're imposing on workplaces and employers the obligation of being the vaccine police. Doesn't seem like a good idea in a country that can't agree on the last election.
0: Now, this area was particularly hard hit. New York uh, shut down on in March 2020, actually 424 days ago on a Sunday night, when it was accounting for half of the nation's coronavirus cases and, and governor Cuomo ordered all non-essential workers to stay home and indoors. And the city has, has partially reopened in recent months, but Wednesday was the first day businesses were allowed to operate with fewer restrictions as to, I guess today and near capacity. What do you think of the, the plan to reopen the city completely on July 1st?
1: I think that if we kept in place and I'm, Thinking, uh, I had the opportunity to tune into uh, something public advocate Jermony Williams had on with uh, Dr. Celine Gounder, who is um, one of the world's leading epidemiologists. She was part of the Biden transition team. And then, of course, um, City Council Health Committee uh, Chairman Mark Levine. Um, Uh, And it was there that I really learned that what's happening flying into this reopening is we have a vast disparity. I know it sounds tiresome, but you have communities like Canarsie and other places where 25 percent to 30 percent of the population are inoculated. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And so mostly
0: we're talking about mostly poor communities and minorities and mostly city workers tend to. live Right. And places where
1: there's been. Well, research has been very clear that the essential workforce is there's a large portion of a significant percentage of people of color. And they live in working class communities. And those places are lagging the infection rate of my colleague. Brian Thompson from Channel 4 did a great story recently comparing the vaccination rates of a place like Livingston, New Jersey, 87, 80 percent white um, with, you know, 85 percent vaccination rate. And then you look at East Orange, where uh, comedian Whoopi Goldberg and Governor Murphy were last week to try to improve on the 40 percent vaccination rate. And so really, it's just a matter of Um, from what i can sense like 30 days so you do have the governor of hawaii and uh, governor newsom taking a more conservative approach like uh governor murphy and of course you know and you can you can it's like you know a a pinata at holiday time you can pick any number of reasons why andrew cuomo is like you know somebody on a parade float throwing away concessions well this is the
0: they're disagreeing, Murphy and Cuomo, yes, on on sure ending are. the mask, uh, mask mandate. Is this their first major divergence? Uh, because they've I been was, in a kind of alliance. Although right. it, it, another argument might be that the infection rate is a lot higher in New Jersey than it is in New York and Connecticut. I, you
1: know, I think that what is, uh, remember, when we go back to the early part of uh, the relatively recent dark ages when uh, President Trump was a predator in chief, playing the states off against each other, you know, trying to uh, push the states from getting access away from the things they needed. Like PP, you remember that stuff, that medieval period mm-hmm. uh, like yesterday. And so in that chaos, uh, to their credit, we did have uh, Governor Murphy and Governor Cuomo and Governor Lamont in Connecticut and Governor Wolf in Pennsylvania um, introduced some sanity and and have some cohesion to be grown ups and come up with a unified response when the federal government was a disaster. Uh, and this is this issue of keeping the indoor mask mandate is, to my recollection, one of the times that there's been some significant diversion uh, and. The problem with that is that it puts the uh, bump, the onus for enforcing this and on an honor system, which isn't practical, especially since we know that so many people most resistant to wearing masks are the people that are also resistant to doing the, uh, the vaccines. And Dr. Gounder suggests, and I think this is totally reasonable, that we just wait till at least uh, we get to a 50 percent threshold and give people of color like a running start, don't you think? Uh, and yet we're not. And so especially in New York and in New York, the economic pressures are such that uh, real estate interests drive this. We've seen it before. Those of us who pay close attention uh, remember what happened on 9-11. We've talked about that before. It's a pretty strong uh, historical corollary. After nine eleven, despite what was in the air—the draino and the fact the site was still burning for months afterwards—you know, Governor Whitman, the EPA chief, assured us that the air was safe to breathe. And so the whole rationale—and it came out in Inspector General's report uh, of the EPA—that they concealed the nature of the health risk and just pressed on because they needed to send a signal to the world that we were open for business. So there's a consistent theme here.
0: Well, and now, by the way, and following up on that, now we see lots of commercials on television from law firms uh, inviting people to sue because they got sick as a result of what happened in 9-11.
1: Right. Well, that's that's a
0: whole new industry opened up there.
1: But no, it's been around for a long time. And one of the things we've been doing at the chief leader, uh, because uh, long before I got to the chief, the chief was really one of the first papers to provide a place for the firefighter unions and the other unions to document what was a serious claim and turned out to be true about the nature of the air quality. And at the time, and it's important to remember this, um, that uh, Mayor Bloomberg resisted this for years. Um, The detective uh, Zadroga, Jimmy Zadroga, that is now hailed as a hero, for whom the Zadroga Act is named, was pilloried by the former mayor as a drug addict. They resisted so strongly the idea that there could be any occupational exposure or risk and yet now everybody agrees there was and similarly we are seeing the same blue light special discount for essential workers in the middle of COVID. and i will say how do we know this because you have everyone from the hospitals to the u.s postal service refusing to disclose the number of people that have died which makes it easy to make them invisible if you don't keep a tally of who died as a consequence of their service to the nation then you don't you can do these kinds of rollouts with uh, and put commerce first because people don't really understand the tremendous toll. Just to give you an example, just some highlights. So we have close to 400 civil servants of different titles in New York City alone that have died from COVID. We have um, close to 160 MTA, primarily TWU members. I haven't gotten out of New York City yet. Mm-hmm. Let's just go across to the Hudson and we have hundreds of healthcare workers, in fact, the Guardian and the Kaiser Health to their permanent credit are the only people that I know of keeping close track. Over thirty seven hundred healthcare professionals across the country have died as a result of COVID who are under sixty. And that's just health care.
0: Now Mayor de Blasio had set the first Monday in May as the day that New York's 80,000 city workers who'd been doing their jobs remotely throughout the pandemic would have returned to to their agency offices. That's a week and a half ago, uh, or two weeks ago. Uh, Inside City Hall, there was a banner welcoming them back but are, aren't they deserted? Did, what did you see when you went right. to so city offices? Funny.
1: Right. So I've been in I've been in a few times for protests and stuff. And that 11, of course, so I wouldn't miss it in the city. So, I, you know, we've been working it, but we didn't go into our office for the, we've been working remotely. And so on Tuesday, that's when the chief leader is out in the newsstands and it's uh, chief leader Tuesday and we go out and you know distribute a few copies of the chief to people and the thing about that paper is it carries with it um a list of all the civil service tests and titles so if you're an aspiring firefighter or emt or and you want to move up the ranks we have the test so i walk around Lower manhattan i've been doing it for five years now and say Are you smarter than your boss take the test and so i get in places because i'm giving something away of value for free and i did the same survey i always did i went to city hall because I have an office there uh, where I'm um, in the radio room, so-called radio room I used to share with Dan Brooks and, and Rich Lamb. And when I walked in, indeed, you're right, there was a huge banner. And Michelle Friand, the photographer, the chief, and myself, we walked in and we were met by a DCAS, Department of Citywide Administrative Services, like, um, you know, general services. And and there was a chart we had to read. It was like a big, you know, three, you um, um, uh, platforms. You had to read like uh, posters and it was information about your health and about COVID. And then I was, I was counted, you know, like one of those clickers they have on a carny ride. Right. And then uh, there was another gentleman with DCAS um, occupational health person who was putting duct tape, like it was staging for a theater production, right. Telling us where to go. Now, when I walk in, I might say on the left side uh, it's the lights are on, but on the right side, that's half of the building Leonard. The lights were out. Because the city council and Speaker Johnson had made a whole other determination that they did not want to risk having their employees there. So that was just City Hall. But we pressed on and we went throughout the city and went to one center street, a building you and I both know well. Mm-hmm. And we went from floor to floor, went to Decast, which is supposed to be the very center of getting back to business. And it was practically a ghost town. In fact, we didn't see anybody. The one place we saw a sign of life was Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer's office, where there was a person that greeted us there. And uh, we had hand sanitizer and there was plexiglass up and it appeared they would be up and running. Now, where things really got crazy, a lot of city workers actually work in private buildings. That's right. There may be a city flying out there, the good old blue, white and orange, but it indeed belongs to a probably well-connected political developer and so in those buildings like at 250 broadway and 100 church street no such decascagon was there so that's my little field trip for you leonard
0: and uh, in fact along those lines gloria middleton the president of the communication workers of america local 1180 says Concerns remain about privately owned buildings, housing city agencies. She said, we know city buildings will follow the protocol, but what about the private buildings owned by the landlords? And she said, and the city really didn't have an, an answer for that question.
1: Well, what they are now, this is where it really matters to be represented, because the. Uh, to DeCast's credit. Wait, wait, the- can, credit can I tell credit. people,
0: that, I'm sorry, I missed my opportunity, I have to do this. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 <laughs> FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Bob Henley, and we're talking about a lot of things that have been happening in the news, and we'll be going on to all sorts of other interesting stories. But uh, to, to wrap this one up, sure. we're, we're talking about, what, 180,000 city workers? Uh being vaccinated, so it, it does. It's does that make it a lot but, easier? But you gotta,
1: you gotta get more granular than that. So the mayor is fond of saying that. But the last time I checked, the police department it's under forty percent in terms of vaccination rate. If you looked at the EMTs, FDNY, and firefighters, it's at fifty percent. If you look at Health and Hospitals Corporation, you know forty thousand somebody to employees, it's around fifty percent. So. There is a serious lagging factor when it comes to civil service, and there's a whole host of reasons for that. Um, and it's important to keep in mind that, for instance, in the police department, 11,000 of the officers have had COVID. And you know, when we, you try to make a judgment about an aggregate thing, you have to understand it's made up of individuals. And people have you know, their own individual health concerns, and they also have some sense that they have some kind of immunity because they went through it. Now, of course, we know public health professionals suggest that these folks get vaccinated. But that's one of the problems here is that you have this um, this wide divergence in terms of compliance with the vaccine mandate.
0: Now, uh, even if people did come to work, isn't most of lower Manhattan closed down? They wouldn't find a place to to eat.
1: Throw it Right. (laughs) said my advice to remote workers thinking of returning is to pack their lunch <laughs> because um my favorite places, you know like you know places that uh you know depending on where it was in the pay cycle i would go you know you start living large for the fancy place and then you work your way down uh all the places were closed there were a handful of places hanging out but it is a shadow of itself and this gets into a kind of chicken or the egg conundrum situation about You know, uh, and it seems to me that they're going to have to do something more targeted to help these businesses. I know that there's a lot of press conferences about it, but I don't know about the granular work of block by block restoration. That's harder.
0: Let's talk about the New York mayoral primary race, which oh, is sure. and all the ads that seem to be filling uh, the the news shows and every other show these days for candidates. The the top two candidates, Eric Adams and Andrew Yang, are closer to the center than progressive candidates like Catherine Garcia and Diane Morales. Might the city end up with a less progressive mayor than even Bill de Blasio?
1: Well, Wow. So, first of all, I I could introduce you to some progressives who would take issue that Mayor de Blasio was a progressive. I know that's the labeling, but again.
0: No, I just said less progressive than he. Oh,
1: okay. well, Right. I, I would say that um, attentive is the word I would use. I think that there is a concern that, um, and this is, you know, being in having people, uh, helping people move in and out of the city and my family over this period of time and being aware of just the, the very basic concerns that we have here. For a long time, people took for granted um, the issue about crime. And so there's a whole host of bad decisions that have now come to roost that um, have to be resolved. And so I think that there is a desire for a, if I could say, use the phrase, a principled pragmatism. I think that there's going to be, on the other hand, you, if you look at Mr. Yang, certainly, uh, what accounts for his uh, success? I mean, he you know, is relatively a newcomer. He did a, a very credible job in building his brand and using the platform of the presidential race to raise some important provocative questions about universal basic income, something Dr. King raised many years ago. But um, I think he's benefited from the fatigue people have on uh, when it comes to of the Punch and Judy show between Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio. I mean, if you think of how much of ink has been spilled and how much airtime has been on that personality contest, you'll see why we're so stuck. Because it's always about them. And my colleagues fall into this thing about that's the story. Meanwhile, we're at this major role, uh, this, this this turning point, where these issues that we've ignored forever. I mean, simply put, what's happening in the subways is of tremendous concern. I mean, when I went in and when I've gone in, what I've seen is a smattering of commuters, the same dispossessed, homeless, mentally challenged, emotionally disturbed individuals and the police
0: and I want to I I deal with the subways uh, in a little while, but sure. can we stick with the, the mayoral race? Sure. Uh, you mentioned er- Eric Adams. He's been building a sort of blue-collar coalition with endorsements right. from the Uniform Fire Officers Association, the right. Transit Workers Union, and others. Um, do you think that will help him as well? I or or will, will right. the, the endorsement of the New York Times that, uh, that Catherine Garcia got, will that be any help for her
1: Uh, well i think um all of the above and i think that one of the things about uh ms garcia is her competence and the fact that i mean imagine that uh, she as a sanitation commissioner is getting the support of the overwhelmingly male sanitation union Hmm. that's a very big deal i don't know that my colleagues necessarily grasp the, the tremendous success and what a positive refl- reflection that is on a woman in a position of leadership. And her ability to, and another, the problem is that her visibility isn't what it should be because she was effective. And so we don't have the kind of headlines related to scandal and screw up because she did deliver a massive citywide, almost instantaneous feeding system for hundreds of thousands of people. Did, did, did the tabloids do a page one story? New York City feeds anybody who's hungry during a pandemic. Did you see a, t- a cover like that in the Post? <laughs> News? Did I miss it?
0: You mentioned scandals. There have been a number of scandals in this race with Scott Stringer, Eric Adams, and Diane Morales all responding to recent revelations in the press. How important do you think they are. Do you think? Well, has Scott Stringer been seriously damaged? Because he keeps on running those ads in which he gives his wife a peck and then uh, and then takes his kid down in the subway steps. Right.
1: You're so cynical. You must have been paying attention a long time. Um, I, I would say I watch that, a lot of TV. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, I would say that. Of course, Scott Stringer did manage to continue to get endorsements um, after. This stuff came out. Um, there is no doubt that w- the with the UFT standing by him and his ability to track, like Local Two Thirty Seven and the Teamsters that represent NYCHA workers, the guys had a long, distinguished public service career and has been there. The office of controller is really critical, particularly to unions, because that position oversees the rate of pay, and that is to make sure that contracts that are in the private sector, nonprofit world, reflect a certain kind of equity. So there's an opportunity there for an attentive controller uh, to do real good for working families. Um, That said, um, there may be a feeling out there in the electorate that the same group, the same posse, the same Mount Rushmore group of guys, overwhelmingly guys, just might be tired after a mass death event where it appears that, you know, we, we have some chaos on the streets.
0: Well, it's an odd election because people are going to have to rank five different people. That uh, I haven't seen that in our area. It's happened in other parts of the country. Has it been successful?
1: Well, I mean, I think there's some West Coast experience in it. What I would say is that it's um, the socially ecology of it is interesting and positive, from my point, because it has, uh, I think at one point, Andrew Yang gave some daylight uh, to Catherine Garcia by suggesting she might be his second choice. Uh, It is creating an opportunity for people to think collaboratively, because they have to think about voting for more than one person. It requires, quite frankly, less binary thinking and more comprehensive evaluation of all the players and how they relate to each other. So from that standpoint, it's a win
0: in my book. Now, you live in New Jersey. Doesn't New Jersey have answer. primary? <laughs> Isn't New Jersey having primary elections as well?
1: Yes, we are. And uh, it's um, we, of course, um, you have a situation where um the republicans are in a in a serious food fight you have um this um there's one guy who's been a run a couple of times hirsch singh is an engineer and a perennial candidate he is uh, very much um, a, a trump acolyte and uh, he has been trying to make his uh, fealty for um the former president in exile and ignominy uh his main recommendation and he's a, opposed by jack chair chair who is your, you know, conventional Republican, uh, Somerset County Freeholder, Assemblyman, um, and and he's kind of gone through a thing where back in 2016, uh, uh, cheer Torelli was uh, very much opposed to to Trump, and then kind of tried to migrate back, and now is is being caught in this situation of the identity of where he needs to be. There's also this Phil Ruzzo, Rizzo, a developer in pastor running, and Brian Levine. What's curious to me is that uh, Chia Torelli, who is the Republican mainstream um, choice, that is, you know, Republicans who are part of the, quote unquote, the establishment. Um, in his introductory message to the public, scrubbed off any historical reference to his considerable political resume in New Jersey, my experience if you hold a lot of elective office and aren't indicted you usually lead with that you're kind of proud right look i've had all these jobs and haven't gone to jail
0: (laughs) but he did it's like so many other elections in in the republican party it's all about whether you uh, express any fealty to donald trump or not
1: right and so as a result what ends up happening is we don't have a broader discussion on the issues that the state confronts i mean the state has had this huge loss of small business that's been catastrophic, and um, it's uh, really not clear what the economic path is going to be forward, because you have such a mixed bag in terms of what the recovery looks like, right? And, so, and you're going to have to start thinking beyond what has come from Washington, because that stuff's not going to be there forever.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. is our guest today on Leonard Lopate at Large. Uh, He visits us once a month to talk about what's going on uh, everywhere, mostly in our area, but but all over the world. And uh, if you want to know what he's doing when he's not on our show, you can follow him on Twitter (laughs) at stucknation.com. Right. Right. Uh, And then also muckrack is also helpful. And uh, you can follow him in at, at, at a number of uh, publications, uh, Salon.com and TheChiefLeader.com. Any Insider any NJ, uh-huh. another fine publication. Okay, well. Plus, The I'm Chief going.
1: Leader's for sale, by the way. You want to buy a newspaper?
0: <laughs> would the union not want to own it? Uh Funny
1: you should say that. Um, While it is printed by a union organization, those of us scribes who write about unions have not been graced with having one. Uh,
0: I see Uh, you. I stop you from talking about what's going on in the subways, but let's talk about it now. Metropolitan Transportation Authority CEO Pat Foy and interim New York City Transit President Sarah Feinberg have uh, cited sub, uh, surveys which show subway safety continues to be a concern of of riders. Um, and uh, just in the last few days, we have uh, seen a number of news stories where suddenly we we see two two police officers walking down the stairs of subway stairs or entering a train. But uh, Ha- hasn't uh, the presence of NYPD officers in the transit system been increased in response to that recent rash of violent crimes on, on subway trains?
1: Uh, the answer is it has been, but I think we need to step back a bit and talk about what people are experiencing in the subway. So we do have this case of dueling statistics where uh, the NYPD Transit and Mayor de Blasio will point to major crime index that shows that it's down. And then you have uh, the MTA and the TWU Local 100 um, pointing out that if you look at the decline in subway ridership relative to crimes, that there's been an increase. And there's also been a double-digit increase in violent assault felonies. And it's also important to understand, and again, it's the same theme. Gosh, you know, the essential workforce, if you're, if you're a TW worker, you're really invisible. Let's just be honest about it, okay? So these people, I mean, I've been at the chief for five years, I've been writing stories about assaults, them getting spit on, them getting all kinds of things done to them. And in many cases, and I'll give you a perfect case, this was an example of a a subway uh, conductor who as his job requires, opens a door, looks out the window of his cab to make sure that people got on and gotten off. And then uh, out of nowhere, an emotionally disturbed person went into a rant that he wasn't supposed to be on the train, that it wasn't his job, and lunged into his, um, uh, his space there, grabbed the man around the neck, thumbed his eye, and tried yeah. to get his keys. Now, against all odds, this um, dutiful employee, a central worker, uh, got onto the next stop, made the train run fine, and yet when he went to the police, what do you think they told him? Leonard, you've been around New York. What would you huh. say to go to the local precinct house? They'll tell you what? Ding, ding, ding. It's not an assault. It's not a crime. It's harassment. Hmm. So, even therefore, though it even though disappears. He, and that's how he, they do it. It's the magical Bureau of Circumlocution. It's not a crime. It's harassment. So, that's well, been going
0: on for years. Well, now Governor Cuomo ahead. is talking about the meaning of harassment, but I always thought harassment was was verbal, uh, you're talking about a physical situation. I'm telling you that so many precinct
1: officers are conditioned. I've had it happen to me where I went in after being assaulted, and then they want to turn you around because their chief objective all too often is to have you leave without filing a crime report. Because if you don't file a crime
0: report, it didn't happen. Yeah, and then they don't have to follow up. Mayor hey, de Blasio... Mayor de Blasio continued to criticize the Metropolitan Transportation Authority for not hiring the full complement of 500 new in-house police officers, which its board had approved several months before the pandemic to address fare evasion. What happened there?
1: Weren't they they supposed to be
0: detailed to the subways?
1: So there is a, um, first of all, let's talk about numbers. So the transit bureau um, full complement is twenty five hundred officers, and then the mayor. After a, a particularly gruesome, uh, and there's so many of these different states, it's hard to. But back in February, uh, I guess when an individual was able to slash and kill, um, I guess two or three homeless people in a morning. Uh, that. You know, uh, resulted in additional 500 officers. Then another spate of this kind of thing happened and then the mayor agreed to 250. But where I think you have to look at it, so the the transit uh, MTA was supposed to sign up, I guess, some 500 additional officers, but then there was, they say, and it, uh, a fiscal crisis, so they had a hiring freeze, so they're a couple of hundred short. Um, and there's also the question of the point, and this is where Eric Adams did a very good job and for people who are still trying to make up their mind in the race, and I, I really don't have any candidate, but I have found informative things the candidates have done. There's a press conference he did um, that's on his Facebook page where he took the reporters to school because he was a transit police officer for a number of years. And what he wants to do in his plan, which I can understand why the TW has endorsed him because it's it's granular, it's real. He pointed out this there's an awful lot of officers in the transit bureau who are doing clerical duties that shouldn't. He pointed out that The graffiti unit is scheduled for uh, like bankers hours on weekdays when they should be on the weekends. I mean, he really listed several things where the idea being to drive the officers onto the trains and out of the mezzanines where they congregate, where they feel comfortable and into the trains. Moreover, the other important thing here is that he's talking about the need to have a major civilian mental health response that's led, led by civilian mental health. Professionals, and that's the other problem here, is that we get into this defund the police thing, where the idea is, well, any police involved in this is going to be a problem because it is true that our experience is that when police who are armed confront someone in the middle of a psychotic break, it doesn't make it better. Mm. We know that, but let me give you this realistic scenario that has to be understood. Say if you're on, um, uh, does Park Place? You know what that is, Lower Manhattan, right? That's a narrow area there, and you have someone that needs to be taken out in a stretcher because they have had a psychotic break and they're a danger to themselves and other people. You have to carry that gurney, which is not light, down the steps, and then you have to be able to bring it back up. In order to do that successfully, you have to have a perimeter that secures the operation from the train itself. What people seem to forget is that trains and subways are not a place of public assembly. They're a heavy industrial place where 400 ton objects go through on a good day at 20 miles per hour. And so it's not the same kind of issue of extracting people who are in serious trouble from that as compared to City Hall Park. And so unfortunately it gets hung up in this police debate rather than in this deeper question about the fact that we have closed many mental health facilities, um, gotten rid of not followed through with any of the at scale community alternatives that were promised and then we closed so many sros and so this is the consequence of decades of policy made for and at the behest of real estate interests that have for a long time owned our city politics
0: hasn't de blasio accused mta officials of putting the blame on the city and Governor Cuomo is urging uh, as part of their war. Well,
1: and that's where, again, this goes into the thing. He's also so
0: blamed to... the problems on the unions.
1: Right. right. Well, I think that what it, what it comes back to is that there's more than enough blame to go around. And so when you get back to it and talk to, you know, listen to Governor Cuomo, he, his opinion of himself is so stratospheric. And it's just amazing. I mean, when you're in the room, you have to bring your own oxygen because <laughs> he's just superior to anyone. And mm-hmm. so when he talks about, he gets into a role about, you just have to make the shelters safe. You make the shelters safe. And and it never occurs to him that, how about people have a home? He doesn't go there. And then he'll go on. The next thing he does, and I've sat through this so many times, in person, and then he'll tell you, during the Clinton administration, I went across this country and it's... Then why is it so bad? And then why did your father and every governor since close and bring down the mental health architecture and not replace it with anything governor
0: how does kendra's law which allows judges to order um assisted outpatient treatment for for people with mental illness play into violence on the subways well in
1: 1999 the idea being that um if individuals don't because this gets into this very difficult area i mean one of the things though so I guess one of the last and most significant thing I remember her Oliver do, Rivera doing, you may remember this, was exposing the brutality of the mental health system. And there were, in, in incredible cases, all kinds of um, just assaults and um, violations of people's civil rights. And so and that was, that was a national issue. And so um, then the idea was, well, we're going to do these community um, satellite outplacements and there was so much resistance to that it just never happened and then so then it was like well let's how can we um require people to get the mental health they need and so the thought here is that judges given a certain record and a certain circ- circumstance uh for instance like a violent assault on people or someone demonstrating that they're a danger to themselves or others that they can require by court order that they follow through on certain kinds of mental health um, uh, treatment. Now, here's the problem. I've written so many stories and sad story about um, FDNY EMT Adiro Arroyo back in 2017. A wonderful woman, um, single mother of five, was killed um, allegedly um, by this 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 guy who's in his early 20s, living in one of Mayor de Palacio's transitional, let me know when you get your act together places. And his father went to the local precinct and said, "Please, he's not taking the medicine he needs to take," and the police didn't have anything to help him with. And this is not an isolated story. So the communities are worn down; they don't have the infrastructure in terms of even family or extended family, nor support. And what you do have is multi-million-dollar nonprofits that are connected. That make money off of keeping the situation exactly as it is. Meanwhile, we don't step up as we need to to create the inpatient facilities that are humane and the community-based alternatives that we know work.
0: Governor Cuomo says the answer to the homeless on the subways is better shelters.
1: Exactly. Well, that's what I said. And that's the point. Mm-hmm. So this is this is this neoliberal, stone-hearted worldview that just doesn't go beyond. It doesn't look like, oh maybe shelters are not the place that people should live. Maybe they should have homes that they can care for and come and go from like humans. Like that doesn't even get in the conversation. It's left to, um, you know, groups that are advocating for the homeless. But unfortunately, um, what you have now is a situation where we have this opportunity, all this money that's coming in and it won't come again like this for a generation. I mean, and you know, my hope would be that out of this billions that are coming into this region, we could deal with some of these issues. And that's an example. Like here's something that if someone said to you, you said to a Republican like Mitch McConnell that community based healthcare is part of infrastructure, they laugh you off the uh, off the floor because to them infrastructure is the moat and the highway to their gated community. But my way of thinking of it is if you can't use the subway because you have an army of mentally health people that have been abandoned there, helping them have a humane alternative is a prerequisite for infrastructure.
0: Could Eric Adams' transit police experience help the subways if if he were mayor?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the the thing that's interesting, because I covered, you know, Eric uh, is no stranger to be at airwaves. Of course, he was... The, he posed a special tra- challenge to the Bloomberg era and Ray Kelly uh, policing because from his position as a captain of the NYPD, 100 Blacks in law enforcement, he was the uh, internal critique about stop and frisk, right? Um, and so he was the one pointing out about what was going on. Now, he has this ability to do things. I know there's a video out there where he shows people how to toss your kid's room, that he has this kind of blue collar sensibility. Um, But, you know, people, he has been, um, you know, endorsed by Sean uh, Bell's father, uh, you know, Abner Louima. So it's a mixed bag. And that's why it's it's so important more than ever, especially because you get a chance, you New Yorkers are lucky and get Five Bites at the Apple to spend time tooling around Um, and really evaluate these candidates. There's a lot out there.
0: Bob Henley is our guest today on Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Bob, I've always thought of the Metropolitan Opera as an ideal institution. So I was surprised to learn from one of your articles that the union that represents its stagehands claims that management has been using is coronavirus shutdown to undermine the union by shipping craft work overseas and and to the west coast to non-union shops uh and and that's uh forced them to accept big cuts in wages and benefits
1: so the thing about this is that um of course the met their response is that in the past they've done this thing of sending out sets Prior to uh, the season, to non-production shops, uh, they are, will tell you that their average stage hand is getting 186,000. They will say they made this. They say offer. they're the
0: highest-paid stage hands in the world.
1: Right, but um, with the union's point, actually local one's point is that rather than um, they feel that the Met, you know, I guess, as executive director, I guess before the pandemic, uh, Peter galba was making an excess of two million dollars. Um, I don't know. I'm sure maybe it's taken some kind of pay cut since one would hope, but their point is that the pandemic, um, has been used to leverage these, these working class families and individuals because they offered them this like $1,300 stipend and then said, you know, that they might get half back in the terms of the pay cut of the box office comes back. But it really, um, uh, and th- th- by the way, they have settled with AGMA with the singers, and they still have a problem with 802 local 802 uh, who insists that they uh, they uh, met as engaged in similar uh, union busting operations um, so I mean it's it's still they've got to get things together because as you know the the gal is in September
0: you quote council member I Denique Miller the, the chair of the city council Civil service and labor Committee is saying during a May 17th phone interview that management was union busting and using the pandemic to do so right
1: and and uh, the other point that he uh raises which is so important is it's important for the unions to have solidarity here one of the interesting things in researching that piece which didn't make it into the story but going back and reflecting on the central role of azi and the stagehands in the american labor movement um and right after the civil war was the first uh, take at this and it was to organize for uh, death benefits and sick pay. They work for 50 cents a day, 100 hours. Um, and then in 1919, a key a turning point came. And by the way, this stuff should be taught in school, but it's not. But in 1919, the actors' equity, the, the forerunner of the modern day version of that, and the, and the uh, stagehands all struck. And then the strike um, really set in a new day for, for theater people and it spread to several cities. Um, and so that's the thing I find over and over again. It's going to be in my new book, Stagnation. This history of people acting in concert in their own self interest to put uh, people over profits works, and yet it's not taught.
0: The Met's been closed since March 2020 because of the pandemic. And uh, as you point out, it's scheduled its gala for September to mark a reopening. Uh, but. Uh, uh, published reports suggest that the 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 Met might not be able to complete its pre-production preparations and rehearsal schedule before the the summer ends. Well, that's the that's the the pressure cooker, right? Um, is the thought that
1: um, and that's the leverage that the union has, and by the same token, so does management. It's so uh, there's a window in time. Um, you know, I. Did I ever tell you that I was actually, I performed at the Met in 1968. Did I ever tell you that? I
0: did not. I'm I'm very uh, impressed. <laughs> yeah, I was. Um, what, what did was you at, perform, Bob? Is it something right, you can yes, talk right about on the air? <laughs> I know we've
1: only got, I've got 10 minutes, but. Um, no, you don't have was, 10 minutes. You have two minutes. No, I I, I was performing at, uh, I was uh, on uh, American Valley Theater as a student. And there was an opportunity in 1968, Saul Herak brought the Bolshoi and Royal Ballets, Naraf was mounting the Nutcracker. Bolshoi was bringing a one-act virtuoso called Ballet School, and they needed dozens of American children. And so mm-hmm. we auditioned, and myself and some of my siblings got a chance to perform that uh, that summer. Oh, that's so impressive. It, was, it was. It was also for me an eye opener because it's. When I it was during the time Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. And for me, the Cold War always became a lie because I was 13, very impressionable. And I saw young Russian people crying because Bobby Kennedy died. Hmm. And so I thought, how bad can they be?
0: When we talk about the Met, we're not talking about some. Brinky ding place when it's up and running, (laughs) it employs 3000 people and pre pandemic, right. I understand it had a three hundred million dollar annual budget that 's a lot
1: it is and and the sad part is and you could remember this um, I think what 's not mentioned, I wish I had room to fit into the piece, but what happened to city opera right I mean, I guess that there's some right. iteration but that whole way that that disappeared from such a presence
0: mm-hmm. and
1: you know I remember you know we had uh, I went regularly, I got cheap seats, I really enjoyed it. I got my opera education there, quite frankly because I could afford it. And one of the things about um, the city opera was it was one of the legacies of uh, Fiorello La Guardia, right? It was the people's um, opera. And yet the city of New York and, and the various powers that be um, couldn't seem to get it together to sustain it at that
0: scale. So I think that's kind of like the sad ghost that's in the room here. You said that you have a book in the works? When do you think- Yes, sir. It's, when is it going to be coming out?
1: Um, It's uh, it's now with the editor, it's being uh, brought out by uh, Democracy at Work, which is an outfit that folks who listen to this era and listen to Professor Richard Wolfe are familiar with. I would imagine it'll be in a couple of months and I'll make sure that you get an advance
0: copy. Well, and then we will actually uh, put you on to talk about the book as well as invite (laughs) you back for one of your regular appearances (laughs) on our show. Um, right. We don't have any time left, but right. uh, do you see anything interesting in, in the on the horizon? Well, I, I do see
1: the we haven't talked a bit about the organizing that's successfully happening. Uh, my colleagues at the Gannett newspapers in uh, the record. Mm, we talked about Errol. last time. Yes, but they, they won that vote, by the way. Oh, um, great. And so there is a movement in that direction. Now, we just got to get the PRO Act passed. So that management can't run the clock out because what happens is you get to the point when you win one of these elections and then the management loses your phone number and Uh then drags their feet and doesn't come to the table. So that's one thing President Biden's doing for the good. And we've just got to get it through. And that means getting rid of the filibuster, for God's sake.
0: Bob, thank you so much. Follow Bob Henley at StuckNation.com and all the other places that we mentioned. It's always a pleasure. See you next month. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access our more than 500 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also find links to all of our past shows at leonardlopateatlarge.com. And if you'd like to send me a comment about something that you've heard on the show or simply want to say hello, my email address is at org. WBAI is still experiencing major financial difficulties due to the pandemic, so we are asking everyone who isn't already supporting this station to go online to give to WBAI.org or to call 212-209-2950 to become a member or a BAI buddy, which is a sustaining member. Why not support the programming that you uh, turn to to learn about books or documentaries or topics that you may not have thought about before? Do it for us. Do it for WBAI. Do it for other listeners who aren't currently in a financial position to be able to support community radios. And just one last time, the number to, uh, to call to make a tax-deductible contribution of any amount is 212 209 2950. It's 212-209-2950. Or you can go online to give to wbaiorg But please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us here, thank you. And we hope you can join us again for tomorrow's show when Andy Norman, the director of the Humanism Initiative at Carnegie Mellon University, will discuss his new book, mental immunity, infectious ideas, mind parasites, and the search for a better way to think. We'll see you then.